to turn in your Bibles with me to Ruth chapter 4. We're now in our fifth week of studying the book of Ruth together. Uh, it's been a couple weeks though, so if you are new, if you need a refresher, we are going to have a big time refresher. All right, first let's pray. Father, help us now as we dig into your word. Give us wisdom and power. Give me wisdom and power by your Holy Spirit. Convict our hearts of sin and righteousness and judgment. Give us faith and newness of life in Christ. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Ruth. Ruth is a story set in a little town called Bethlehem. A little town called Bethlehem, a little town of Bethlehem, in the time of the judges, okay, 3,000 plus years old or something crazy like that, Bronze Age, it's a Bronze Age love story, okay, and it begins with tragedy, famine comes to the land and a man named Elimelech faces a tough decision, he can figure out how to make things work, see if he can't provide for his wife and two sons, with God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, in the middle of a famine. Or he can try to do what others in the faith have done when famine hits and find a place to sojourn. Elimelech chooses to leave. He leaves God's people. He leaves God's place. He goes and sojourns in the land of Moab. Moab, good or bad? Bad. Moab's a bad place. Why? All kinds of answers, and they're all right. The answer is yes, bad, right? In Moab, Moab uh, is descended from father-daughter incest, okay? They were enemies of the people of God. God had forbidden any interaction with the people of Moab whatsoever. Not to have anything to do with Moab, okay? Elimelech goes to Moab. He goes to Moab, where they worship the demon god named Kamash. He takes his wife Naomi and his two sons, Malon and Kilian, Okay? Elimelech dies. His sons, Malon and Kilian, take Moabite wives. They have no kids, not able, they're barren. Ten years, they die. Everybody's dead, and now Naomi is alone with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and a girl named Ruth. Naomi hears that there is bread, that God has visited his people with bread. She decides after however many years, ten plus years, that it's time to go back to God's people. She tells her daughters-in-law they can go back to their homes. Orpah leaves. Ruth says, no. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and be buried. Ruth decides to go. Okay. They make their way, Ruth and Naomi, back to Bethlehem. They have nothing. Naomi says she went away full. She came back empty. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means sweet or pleasant. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. When they arrive at Bethlehem, they're poor. They still need to eat. Thankfully, God in his law has provided a way for caring for the poor. And the way it would work is your fields, if you have a field, you're not allowed to go all the way out to the edges when you harvest. You have to leave some as I heard uh, or saw one commentator say, some margin for the marginless, okay? You have to leave the edges for the poor. And on top of that, you're not allowed to double back over your fields. Anything you miss, you have to leave behind. Anything you've dropped, you have to leave behind. You have to, this is how you provide for the poor. 
and how you provide for the poor in a way that protects the dignity of the poor, right? You're not giving handouts. They have to come to your field. They have to gather it themselves. They have to do the work, but it's there for them if they need it, okay? So this is what Ruth decides to do. She and Naomi need to eat. This is for the poorest of the poor. That's how we know we're, they're left with nothing, okay? So Ruth goes to gather, She goes out hoping to find a place to glean, and she happens, or happens to happen, the Bible says, it's God's words, in God's providence to the field of a man named Boaz. God's providence is his guiding hand in the world. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. It's Romans 8, 28. Most of how we experience God's providence is as chance, as happenstance. From Ruth's perspective, she just went out into a field. She happened into the field of a guy named Boaz. Turned out pretty great for her. From God's perspective, nothing happens by chance. This was God's plan. This was God's design all along. God has a plan for Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. And that plan is going to impact generations to come. We get to watch the story unfold from God's perspective. We know how it ends. That's not what they know, though. They just know where they're at. Ruth knows... Her father-in-law is dead. Her brother-in-law is dead. Her husband is dead. She just left her entire family behind. She left the nation and the country that she came from behind to follow her mother-in-law to a strange place where she's not welcome. And they're poor, and they have nothing to eat, and she had better go out and work and take a risk and put herself in a vulnerable position so that she can provide for herself and for her mother-in-law. That's all that Ruth knows. It's a tough position to be in. Boaz knows, I should probably go out to the fields today and check on the workers. He doesn't know that he's going to meet a woman that will change his life. He has no idea. He doesn't know that the woman who changes his life will then change the course of history. But that's exactly what happens. Boaz shows up to his fields. He sees a woman out there. He asks the foreman, who is that woman? He says, it's that Moabite girl, the one that came with Naomi. Boaz knows who Ruth is. He's heard. So he springs to action. The foreman is like, she's been out here all morning. She's been working her tail off. She stopped once very briefly to rest. She's been out there going hard. Boaz steps in, springs to action. He calls her over. He starts talking to her. He calls her his daughter. Right away, here she is in the fields, first day, feeling like an outsider. Because she is an outsider. My daughter. And then he tells her, listen, I don't want you to go to anybody else's fields. You stay here, I'll keep you safe. It's dangerous out there. You took a risk in coming out at all, and God bless you for it. You stay close to my young women. I have told my young men not to lay a finger on you. When you're thirsty, you drink from the well, and you don't even draw your own water. You make the young men do it. I will take care of you. You will be part of my family now. This is how I will treat you. Ruth didn't know what to expect when she went out. This is what she finds. She falls on her face. Why? Well, She's vulnerable. She's exposed. Her husband is dead. Her 
Every male in her household is dead. She's had to be strong for herself. She's had to be strong for Naomi. Here she is out in the fields. It's dangerous. She didn't know what was going on. Wrong family, wrong ethnicity, wrong side of the tracks. No one to look out for her. No one to protect her. No one to avenge her. And then here comes Boaz. So she says, why? And he says, I know what you've done. I know who you are. I know how you left your father and your mother and your homeland to come here and take care of Naomi. I know how vulnerable you are. I know how weak you must feel. I know how scared you are, how alone. I know that you've entrusted yourself to God. Ruth feels seen and understood and appreciated. Boaz knows something that felt like probably only between her and God. He honors her for it, and Ruth is comforted. That's what it says. Nobody's bothered about Ruth at all. The foreman didn't even know her name, right? The girl who came with Naomi, everything's been about Naomi. Boaz sees Ruth, and she's comforted. Then lunchtime comes. And you can imagine, again, what it must be like to be Ruth. Outsider. Woman among all these men. Everyone stops to eat. She doesn't have food. What's she supposed to do? Where's she supposed to go? Keep working? Well, she has to stay behind the workers. What's she going to do? Boaz calls her over. Sits her down at the table. Gives her bread and wine. Makes sure she has enough to feed herself to the full and have more to take home to Naomi. Y'all ever been the kid at the new kid at school, and you go into the lunchroom, the cool kid, right? The, I don't care who it, is, who, who it would have been for you, the head cheerleader, the captain of the basketball team, whoever it is, comes and invites you to sit at the, that's a, that's a tiny, that's like, doesn't even touch it, right? Boaz makes her feel welcome and safe and protected and part of the family. He makes sure everybody knows This is how we treat Ruth. Then when it's time to go back out to the fields, he calls the young men over and he says, listen, you're going to let her glean among the sheaves. You're going to be sure that you occasionally drop some things out of your basket. You're going to make it easy. She doesn't need to know that you're making it easy, but you're going to make it easy. Ruth is having the day of her life. She works until the light is gone. The light's gone. She goes to beat out the grain that she's gathered. She has gathered two to three weeks worth of in a single day. Ruth, hardworking and loyal and godly, even though she's very poor. Boaz, wealthy, generous, safe. He sees Ruth's godliness. He sees her vulnerability. His instinct is to protect her. He steps in. He inserts himself. He doesn't step on her. He protects her dignity. She still works. She still earns her bread, but he is looking out for her. He is a worthy man and she is a worthy woman. Romance appears to be in the air. Naomi senses it. She feels it. She gets hopeful because Boaz is not just a good man. Boaz is what is known as a redeemer. She's family. That means that when a man dies, the nearest male relative steps in and takes care of the family. Everything. The household, the property, everybody. Nobody's done that for Naomi and Ruth. But actually, Boaz is a distant relative and a man. And he can do it. And Naomi knows it. She gets excited. She gets stars in her eyes. But a couple months pass. Harvest is over. Nothing happens. Goes nowhere. 
Naomi comes up with a plan. Plan is for Ruth to bathe and perfume herself to get herself dolled up and cute and to slip on down to the threshing floor at night because Boaz is supposed to be down there. She's supposed to scout the spot where he sleeps, wait until he's had plenty of food and wine and fallen asleep, and then go uncover his feet and do whatever he says. Good plan, bad plan. It's uh, fraught, we'll say. Okay? We've talked about this in our last sermon on Ruth. Okay? Go back and listen to it if you don't know. It's not clear exactly what Naomi is suggesting, but it is dangerous. It is not safe. That's clear. If it's dangerous for her to go out into the fields in the daytime, it's dangerous for her to go to the threshing floors at night. Okay? All kinds of reasons for that. What's clear, though, is that Ruth is is intent on being godly, and so is Boaz. She goes and she does what Naomi says when he wakes up. She basically asks him to propose marriage to her because he's a redeemer. And Boaz wakes up. There's a woman. She's asking him to ask her to marry him. Okay? And he says, okay, wait, wait. I would like to marry you, actually. But it's not that simple because I'm not first in line. I'm second in line. Also, everything that's happening right now is crazy. How are we going to get out of this situation? Okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to stay here, and I'm not going to touch you. And as soon as it like, gets as close to morning as possible, but nobody can see you, you're getting out of here. Because I want to protect your purity and your dignity and your reputation. So that's what happens. And he says, don't worry. I will take care of this one way or another. There's a man who's first in line. I'm going to go find him. If he's going to step in, great. If not, I'm stepping in. In all of this, Boaz is strong. He's righteous. He's safe. What makes Boaz safe? Boaz has the right response to weakness and vulnerability. That's, that's what? Many men despise weakness and vulnerability. It's deeply rooted in fear and insecurity, and it makes them unsafe. Let me explain what I mean, okay? When I was five or six, my parents divorced. That sort of thing is traumatic for a five or six-year-old. Some of you have been there, okay? What happens when a six-year-old boy has his family torn apart? Family is stability. Family is strength. Family is protection. Family is safety. There's vulnerability and fear and fragility. Being a kid is scary enough. Being a kid with your home fracturing, with the most fundamental relationship in your life, mom and dad, fracturing is really scary. Six-year-old boy with that kind of fragility and vulnerability builds walls. He learns to despise his weakness. He vows and takes steps to remove all weakness and vulnerability from his life. He tries to make himself invulnerable. That's what kids do. If they don't have a strong home, if they don't feel safe and secure in the love of their parents, if their parents don't have their hearts, and if they get stuck that way in a state of arrested development, they become immature men. And immature men attack weakness. They can't abide it because it makes them feel unsafe. They attack it in themselves mercilessly, which helps them to a point. But all weakness must become strength. There's no compensating for it. There's only strength or there is denial. And when it comes to others, the immature then attack the weak. They become bullies. Weakness cannot be tolerated. 
not outside and not in those that I love. They've only got one frame for weakness. Exploit it, crush it. That's it. But mature men address weakness. And they address it appropriately. In themselves, they strengthen the things that are weak where they can be strengthened. And they find godly and mature ways to compensate for weakness by leaning on the strength of others. They don't have a need in themselves to shore it all up. Mature men address weakness and vulnerability in others the same way. By using their strength, by lending it, by providing it to the weak, and by strengthening the hands of the weak. Not by exploiting, not by crushing. This can even happen in intact homes. Okay, Parents, if you feel impotent in your homes, it's because you don't have the hearts of your kids. If you feel impotent, and allow that fear to turn to anger, it will drive your kids away. It will cripple you. At the end of the day, you have to have your kids' hearts. If there are walls, you have to take responsibility for your part in forming them. Your kids are moral agents. They can be rebels. They can be stubborn. They're sinners too, but they key off of us. They're mirrors. Okay? I know this from my own experience. To fix things with one of my kids, I had to grow. I'm not going to tell this story, but I'll tell the story if you, want to, if you want to know. I had to learn to rest in the kindness of my Heavenly Father, who understands my sins and weaknesses, who knows my frame, who loves me, who has compassion for me, and who was going to help me figure out how to raise my kids, and who had given me plenty of people around me to help. I had to be okay with being weak. I had to trust that in my weakness, God would prove strong. I still do. Then I had to fight for this particular kid's heart, whatever it took. Turns out daily piggyback rides went a long way. (laughs) Boaz was mature. He looked at Ruth. He was able to see her strength, which was real, and her weakness and her vulnerability, which was real. He was able to encourage the one. He was able to address the other. He was able to provide her the protection she was unable to provide for herself. He conducted himself with honor to the end. He wakes up in the middle of the night, behold, a woman does not see her even in that moment as something to exploit or to despise. He sees her vulnerability. He sees her desperation. He praises what's praiseworthy. He encourages her her courage and her loyalty. He blesses her. He sets out to protect her from others, from himself. He's not going to touch her. He's He's not going to send her out vulnerable. He's going to be sure she gets home safe. And he's going to be sure that she gets redeemed. Okay. Now, I know I've spent a lot of time so far this morning revisiting ground we've already covered, but it has been a couple of weeks. And I wanted to take our time getting back up to today's passage because I want us to feel it when we see what Boaz does, okay? Verse by verse, chapter four, beginning in verse one now, and I know that it's late. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, okay? City gate is where everything happens. Everything, it's like if you could combine the courthouse and the civic center with like Eastland Mall circa 1992, right? Like if you wanted to find somebody, like you, you you go to the mall, you could probably have a good chance to find it. Like, it's just, that's just where everything happens, okay? Everything happens there. I don't know where we have that now. If you're a Christian, it's like going to 
parlor donuts or something. I don't know. It's lame. All right. So is the mall, but, you know, we were dumb. It's where business is transacted. It's where buying and selling happens. It's where court is held. It's where you go if you want to conduct business, where you want to run into somebody. Okay, that's where Boaz goes, and he sits down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. This is like God being tongue-in-cheek here. Shocker. Surprise. It just so happened that God in his providence had a plan, and he was going to make it happen. The Redeemer came by. Boaz says, hey, I was looking for you. Turn aside, friend. So that, now, funny thing about that word friend, it doesn't mean friend. Nobody knows how to translate it because it basically amounts to Mr. So-and-so. Mr. What's-his-name. Mr. Mr. You, you, you the Bible is making it clear that we don't know this guy's name and we don't care. Okay? So here it is. God in his providence, no coincidences. Mr. What's-his-face shows up. This is how God works in most of our lives, right? Some of us read the Bible. Some of you read the Bible. You see God talking to Abraham or to Moses, and you want that in your life, and so you're looking around for burning bushes. No burning bush is going to talk to you because you're not Moses, okay? This is how God works in most of our lives. Sit down, Mr. What's-your-face. Come here. Okay. So he turns aside and he sits down. And he, Boaz, took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Okay, now quick check. Boaz, hey you, sit down. I'm going to go get 10 elders of the city. Hey guys, come sit down. They all come and they sit. What does that tell you about Boaz? He's a dude, right? Like people respect Boaz. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi who has come back from the country. Now watch what he does. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Boaz has a plan. Came up with this in the night, whatever. He's got a strategy. He's going to create an environment where there's pressure. He's going to force the issue. He says, hey, you know Naomi, she can't afford the land. Now, the way that they thought about land is not how we think about it, okay? The way they thought about property is not how we think about it. We buy it, we sell it, we trade it. No, what you have is yours, and it is what you have to pass on to your, your kids. It is how they will, it's how you provide for your kids. It's how they will provide for themselves for generations, you don't give that up. And if there is a chance to get more, you take it. This is how Boaz presents this. And here it is. And Boaz is like, I want this land. You take it now or I'm going to take it. And the dude's like, wait, wait, land? Okay, let me see if I got the money. Yeah, I'll take it. So there he is. The elders are there. And he says, I'll redeem it. Boaz says, great. Now let's talk specifics. Let's get into the details. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Okay? You see what Boaz is doing? He's got ten elders there. He's making it clear in public record that Ruth has a legitimate claim on the land. Not everybody sees it. 
he has asserted that Ruth has a claim on the land, even though she's a Moabite. So she's not going to be swept under the table. The land's not going to pass to somebody else without her. She's the wife of the dead. She has rights too. She's a Moabite. She comes with the land. And your duty then is to be sure that you raise up children for Elimelech and his sons. Dude's like, wait. I, uh, I, don't want, I don't want that. I don't want the Moabite. I don't want it. Like, I have my own kids or I have my own plan. I have my own property. I'm not giving all that up. I'm not giving up my name. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my, my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. So Mr. Whatchamacallit backs out. Why? The deal's changed. He would have to be responsible for Ruth the Moabite, for marrying her, for providing for her, for giving her children. Those will be Elimelech's children. The estate will be in Elimelech's name, not Mr. What's-His-Face's name. And he wants his name to be remembered, so he's out. Okay? Calculation changed. The bottom line changed. He's under pressure. Boaz has him under pressure. He cracks. Boaz knows what he wants. Boaz is ready to close the deal on the spot. He's ready to sign on the dotted line. He's got the elders there. He has everything that he needs. All the evidence is lined up. The exchange is legitimate. They go through a weird sandal exchange thing. Basically, Mr. What's-His-Face saying, I won't step foot on this land. It is now yours. Okay? Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have brought, bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, May you act worthily in Ephrathah, so the region, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. We talked about that before, if you remember. Because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Boaz got it done. Same day. He got it done right. He dotted all the I's. He crossed all the T's. He made sure it was open and public and clear. And I want us to understand something. Boaz was happy. Boaz did the right thing. But everyone would have felt sorry for Boaz because Boaz gave up his name. Nobody was going to remember the name Boaz anymore. They were going to remember the name of Mr. What's-His-Face. So everybody was sad for Boaz and happy for What's-His-Face. What's-His-Face chose to be remembered. Boaz, for love of Ruth and a desire to honor God, chose to be forgotten. And so we definitely forgot Boaz and remembered what's-his-face. This is the way God works. This is the way God works. It's why we remember his name. And it's why we don't know who Mr. What's-his-face is. Whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. So we don't just remember the name Boaz. We say it in the same breath as we say David and Jesus. Because through this act of self-sacrifice, Boaz became the father of Obed, became the father of Jesse, became the father of David, the man after God's own heart. 
How do you have a godly line of men who are after God's own heart? You've got to be like Boaz. From David comes Solomon. Solomon builds a temple. In the temple, there's a pillar named Boaz in the temple. And down the line, we have Jesus. Whoever loves his life must lose it. Whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. This is how God works. Boaz was a godly man. He knew what to prize and what to value. He understood what he was getting in Ruth. Everybody else saw a poor Moabite, wrong family, wrong ethnicity, wrong nationality, wrong social class. Boaz saw godliness and strength and beauty and the kind of vulnerability that he was ready to step in and protect. And look what God did. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Boaz and his example. I pray that you would raise up in this church men who have his kind of strength, his kind of care and concern for the weak and the vulnerable, men who are safe. Help us, Father, to honor you as a church and as a family. Help us to live in love for one another. Help us to raise up men who have a heart after you. In Jesus' name, amen.